0: Brilliant. Okay. Hi, and uh, good morning. And well, it's good morning to me. And um, welcome to this new episode of 2017, the We Do Science podcast. Um, my guest today is Dr. Ben Desbrow. Hi, Ben. How are you doing?
1: I'm very well, thanks, Lauren. How are you?
0: <laughs> I'm fine. We just spent half a day just trying to get this recording to work, which is um, an auspicious start to 2017. This is supposedly. The first of a new series of podcasts that I'm doing, Um, so um, I'm just happy to have you here, mate. Yeah, well,
1: Um, uh, you know, uh, we're going to talk caffeine, and caffeine uh, has got a large sort of interest in endurance sport. It's been an endurance task just to get to this point today.
0: No, it does, but unfortunately, I can't get caffeine into my computer, so we'll, we'll see. We'll see how it works on the human systems here. So. Um, this is episode 90, 91 uh, to the listeners, and um, this new uh, this new series is all specifically about science to practice. I know that's kind of what I've been doing for the last 90 episodes, but from episode 91 onwards, um, I'm really focusing specifically on science to practice um, issues, and um, for um, people who aren't familiar with this podcast, just go to guruperformance.com, check out the 90 episodes that have already been recorded. We've also got uh, infographics, info videos, all sorts of free educational material, and also you can learn about our other um, professional um, postgraduate programs in nutrition. So anyway, back to today's episode. Ben, for the sake of the listeners, if you could just quickly introduce yourself, please.
1: Uh, yeah. so um, um, as uh, you've indicated, I'm... um I'm Ben Desborough. I'm an associate professor in nutrition and dietetics and in particular sports nutrition at Griffith University, which is on the Gold Coast, um, which is just below Brisbane in Australia. It's on the East Coast. Um, I have always been interested in sport and exercise and then found my way into uh, learning about nutrition um, and was fortunate to have a fellowship in sports nutrition at the Australian Institute of Sport in Canberra. and from there, that sort of really set my career um, trajectory um, to go down the pathway of sports nutrition. And I ended up doing a PhD in sports nutrition here at Griffith. And I've been here for um, the last 15 years, which um, it has surprised me as to how long I've stayed in one spot. But there you go.
0: No, that's great. But that's not as long as it's taken us to get this recording to work. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, anyway. So, like I said... Um, You know, we're going to talk about caffeine and performance today. There's loads of literature. um, You guys put together, that's between yourself, Louise Burke, and Lawrence Spree, a really good overview um, uh, book or booklet, we'll call it, um, which I recently purchased myself. um, which uh, folks can get on Kindle. You don't even have to have the paper version. I do recommend everyone gets a copy of this. There are lots of papers uh, since the since the production of this one. I, do you have a new version coming out soon, by the way? Uh,
1: there's nothing planned. Um, I have seen so, it translated into a couple of different um, languages, which is which is fantastic, given the fact that right. caffeine is um, u- ubiquitous in the food system across sort of many cultures. So, uh, well, it is.
0: It, it's been around a while, hasn't it? And yeah. I think you know this is there are all sorts of topics we can get into with nutrition, which an awful lot of listeners may themselves never actually do and by that, I mean specialist interventions and we could be talking anything from you know train load to sleep load type approaches they may never do they may never want to verge into the crazy realm of um fat adaptation and keto and all that crazy stuff that's very hot topic right now. But caffeine is one of those things that that we all use, and like you say, it's highly ubiquitous in society, which is one reason why I wanted to talk about this today because um, although um, there's some great science behind it, it it is one of those things that we use and abuse from day to day, and there's a bit of a mismatch between what we um, know or think we know about caffeine mechanistically, uh, the science uh, can be very interesting, but when we apply it to a real-world context with people who use caffeine, uh, as I am this morning, to even just get me going, um, I love coffee. Coffee is my thing. Um, you know, my um, um, m- my wife loves tea. Um, we a lot of us like chocolate. There, there are so many places where we can get hold of this stuff. But the fact that this is an awesome um and highly effective if used properly which will get into um ergogenic aid for performance purposes and it's also of use in many contexts for recreational athletes really does make it quite amazing so um you know as we're getting into this ben why don't you just give us a super quick Sort of history of caffeine in sports. Um, what? Why are we even having this com- this conversation about caffeine and performance?
1: Yeah. Well, um, uh, I am. I guess um, the the background in terms of caffeine. Uh, I did my PhD in cola beverages and endurance exercise because at the time we were trying to have a better understanding of you know people who drink cola beverages <coughs> late in exercise tasks. And there's been anecdotal reports of people using caffeine um, for concentration, lift-in mood, endurance performance uh, for, for many decades. And and as part of my PhD, I sort of went back into literature to have a look at, you know, what was the history of, of you know, where this evolved from, this link between caffeine and sports performance. And the first um, sort of physiological papers that that I came across were from um, 19, 1907. Um, there was some work published from from Cambridge Uni, a couple of authors there looking at um, caffeine's ability to um, produce sort of arm lifting, finger lifting movements over a you know a, a long period of time, um, right through to the 1940s and 50s when motor racing started to become more popular and and people used to take uh, caffeine both on the basis of its performance enhancement, but also on the basis of uh, of commercial sponsorship. Um, so um and then if you go sort of beyond that um through to the sort of real emergence of the the popular nature of um the olympic games um caffeine caffeine related products have been linked through um again through sponsorship through um i you know identity particularly in things like cola beverages to um link to particular countries and it's formed a part of sort of almost national identity when people have been away fighting wars in different countries, getting access to um, certain products that, that contain caffeine, whether they be teas, coffees, cola beverages, have, have sort of almost formed part of a national identity. So caffeine is, um, you know, we, we look at it in our lab and, and, we, and we study it, um, but as you correctly identify, it comes in lots of different foods and, and a lot of those foods have broader sort of social importance to people um, and, and that shouldn't be... I guess uh th- pushed aside whilst we talk about the sort of underlying mechanism as to what caffeine may or may not do to exercise performance.
0: Yeah well I you see I think that's an important point and um I want to get into that a bit because you, you know I think the more the more one explores um you know science and knowledge and how we translate this stuff into an applied context you know the the you know Einstein you know famously made a, a point about um You know, if if you can't explain things simply, then you just don't understand it enough. And um, But also, we don't want to make it too simple. And this is one of these topics where there are degrees of complexity to it. And, And because it's so ubiquitous, you know, as you were inferring, I mean, there's even, you know, drug cartels like the Colombian sort of drug cartels where, you know, even it's not just about drugs. I mean, it's also about owning huge patches of um, coffee plantations and obviously there's, there's the sort of um, the, 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 the crazy empires of Coca-Cola and Pepsi and so on. I mean, caffeine and its various products are amazing. Um, but this is important because when we are looking to use um, something to have certain performance enhancing effects, certain assumptions are made which... We develop in the lab when we're trying to control variables. We, you know, we, we we have to do certain things which aren't necessarily the things that people do in their day-to-day lives. So what we see in the lab um, when we're taking these these products to see what effects they can have, um, we should bear in mind that these are not the same environments that regular people are in. And, and when we're looking at something like caffeine, which is so ubiquitous, as as we've said, um, we do need to bear these things in mind. So Um, perhaps before we get into how caffeine actually works and, and, and we'll get into some mildly technical stuff just to set the scene a bit. Um, I mean, what, you know, let's just differentiate the real world from, um, from the lab environment as it relates to caffeine research. Mm -hmm. Yeah. If you could just quickly give us a sort of an overview of, of, of you know what we're looking at in terms of, of caffeine research yeah. differentiating performance from you know other stuff
1: yeah so i guess um one of the important issues is that when, as you mentioned when we go into the lab we, we tend to try and want to standardize and control as many things and, and a lot of the time um that's as much to appease um, journals and journal reviewers as it is to have a better understanding of of you know how an individual may or a group of individuals may respond to caffeine We've done a whole range of um, studies that you know are both laboratory-based but also behaviourally based, um, and also looking at sources of caffeine in the food supply, um, because very rarely do people actually take anhydrous caffeine or caffeine citrate that you might supply some to somebody in a, in a laboratory environment, uh, and and rarely is it in a relative dose as well, which is typically the way we do it in the laboratory. So. You know, we've sort of gone upstream a little bit um, and looked at things like the caffeine content that you might find in espresso coffees and, and done some work in that space. Um, we've also looked at um, the way people use caffeine in terms of um, their own sort of lifestyle. So we've done some research looking at um, things like uh, does caffeine improve people's enjoyment of, of activity? So if they're going to exercise, does it, you know, we, we know it has effects on things like rate of perceived exertion, but, but also exercise enjoyment. Um, we've started to uh, also look at um, other um, potential um, links between um, not just caffeine, but the products that's delivered by. So looking more at um, um, coffee, um, cola beverages, as I mentioned earlier, um, to uh, and gels to have a look to see really um, caffeine, as I said, is rarely delivered as one package um, and, and people don't tend to consume it that way. Um, so we need to, you know, have a look at what's happening in the real world and sort of make some some recommendations from that. Um, Beyond that, we also know that um, what looks very nice as a a grouped sort of data set in a a journal is is often masking what actually happens at the individual level. So within our laboratory, we've seen um, some individuals respond very differently to caffeine. So it's about understanding some of those different individual responses as well.
0: Yeah, I, I mean that's a good point. I, throughout this podcast I do frequently um, remind the listener and myself um, that scientists often publish means and although it is becoming more popular for individual data to end up in the journal it, it, it it's tempting to um, just read the journal and look at the findings and apply that to, to anyone and of course we shouldn't do that. Um, particularly for those that are looking to use this stuff in um, for performance or high performance, you really do need to practice. Um, you know, uh, people are very into training, physical training, but they're not so much into nutritional training. And I, I certainly with my athletes, you know, one of the big things we do is nutritional training, is to actually try this stuff out. How's it actually gonna affect the individual? Um, which is important for practitioners to recognize all this stuff is just tools in the toolbox. You just need to understand which tool to use and when to use it and when not to use it. And, yeah. and, so. and I think it
1: um, comes with the interpretation of the data as well. I mean, you know, there's lots of studies that have been done, as you mentioned, on caffeine. But, you know, there's actually very few studies in the literature that have looked at coffee versus caffeine in the same participants. You know, So um, there's something as simple as that, which is, you know, most people most commonly going to consume caffeine in a, in a sort of real world sense, you know, probably in coffee is, is the most common way. Um, but there's actually, you know, there's only a, you know, really a, a very small number of studies where where the other constituents of the coffee, as well as the caffeine, have been sort of investigated within the one subject pool. So, you know, there's lot, whilst there's lots known, there's also lots of, you know, basic questions that remain sort of, um, you know, very superficially covered.
0: Yeah, that you know, it's an underlying theme, I think, particularly in sports nutrition um, or performance nutrition, because. You know, and we do need to be reminded that it is more or less the the newest kid on the block in sports science. It's such a new thing. It's it it you know, much of what we know is 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 new, and we have a feeling because so many studies get published. You've got all these open access journals now. um, One gets one gets the impression that that a lot of stuff's established, and it isn't. And I think that's the great thing about caffeine. And you could you could. I mean, I think the, a conversation on creatine is a lot more established. But caffeine, there is no shortage of studies. But one thing that struck me as I was researching this, for this um, and reading up on on the various caffeine and coffee studies, sorry, caffeine studies, is the fact that scientists sort of pick a number um, in terms of dosage, and then. Um, a few studies get done, and then a bunch of other studies get done, and they just choose the same dosage that the researchers use, which isn 't necessarily the ideal dosage from a um, from a practical standpoint it's just replicating other studies or i mean maybe you could just mention that because that is important when people read this stuff that the dosage is whether it's six you know uh, grams per milligram or you know three grams or whatever and we, we can talk about. Um, some of the extra work you've done more lately, Lawrence Spreet's work, which I found very interesting with the low dose stuff, um, is very interesting. We, we don't want to just look at that dosage and take it as granted that that is what we should take.
1: No, and I, I think, um, again, come back to um, the way people use caffeine in the real world. They don't tend to have six milligrams per kilo body weight um, to provide the sort of benefits that they're looking for from caffeine, whether it's uh, an emotional lift, a concentration lift, a, you know as as, you know an avoidance of of feeling tired Uh, people tend to um, use caffeine at much lower doses Um, and uh, whilst there's been a number of uh, dose response studies now in the literature um, clearly the um, response to those is 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 more isn't always better Um, that um, you know some of our work is really concentrated on well what's What's the the smallest dose you need to take to get uh, a return on that investment? We don't want people taking you know large doses of psychoactive substances that, um, if, if if that's not going to uh, convey additional benefits, and, and in fact may potentially um, uh, hamper performance. Um, so, you know, d- many of the, the studies uh, that are sort of being uh, done now really look uh, from a exercise performance perspective they're really around that sort of three milligrams per kilo dose which for most people is around sort of 200 250 milligrams of caffeine um for sort of most people's body weight but that's the sort of dose that um is is i guess um becoming um, you know more common more typical in the sports science literature
0: yeah i i can see it now people are sort of working out their uh, caffeine dose but Kiloweight. People have got their uh, phones out. They're tapping the numbers into their calculators, and they're walking into Starbucks or whatever, um, or people who may have better coffee taste than that. But and they're literally adjusting the size of their americano based on their.
1: Because oh, um, you know, there's there's actually um, you know when when we say sort of about two hundred milligrams of, of of caffeine is is the the dose that um, we would often sort of typically revolve around in the lab. But then, what we've gone and looked at espresso coffees. Um, you know, if you if you go um, and just ask for an espresso coffee um, at coffee shops, well, um, and the UK data is quite similar to Australia. Um, their foods, the food standards um data that's available is they've got the data set still online which is which is great because you can get in and look at the raw data the variability in that's quite huge so it's you know with espresso coffees over here we've, we've seen a range of you know roughly about 30 milligrams to about 220 milligrams in one serve so it's very difficult to um you know estimate exactly what you're going to receive from a you know from a commercial consumer perspective uh, which is one of the reasons that we use pure caffeine in the lab. Um, and and we've, yeah. we've now done that with um, with uh, Nespresso pods. We haven't published that work, but we've done some caffeine variability in that space. And, and we've also uh, recently been looking at uh, pre-workout supplements as well to have a look at some of the variances in caffeine in, in those products. And, and, and some of them can be quite considerable. So it's it's very challenging for the average the average person who's uh, then trying to translate the laboratory studies into sort of um you know
0: practice advice yes it is well you know and that's one of the reasons why we're trying to do these things is yeah. is obviously we you know in the space of this podcast we can't cover everything we need to and that's why um we'll refer to the various publications that are out there where they can get their hands on the on the uh, the fine details but it's up to us just to make people think About what they're doing, Um, and um, you know, um, I think you start off actually um, your your book there with uh, there's three things you need to bear in mind, and you know, where these are obviously uh, this all goes back to Ron Morn's original things about about supplements, but you know, there are three points one has to consider, doesn't one? um, Perhaps you could just remind us about what they are
1: well effectively it was that um uh if if something uh doesn't um improve performance it's it's probably um or sorry i should go the other way if if, if a supplement is um promising uh, the world and changes performance it's it's probably illegal um and if it's uh, not changing performance it's 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 probably um able to be consumed legally and the third that there may be some exceptions and that we point out that um the caffeine m- may be one of those that it's both uh, legal and effective but yeah um the the evidence um you know it, it has been um i guess uh sort of rapidly growing over the last sort of 15 years or so in terms of you know becoming a little bit more specific
0: yeah no no it's great well i mean you know that summarize that is is it effective is it safe and is it legal well you have to ask yourself listeners or for your you know your athletes or your clients you know how to you know how to answer those questions is is dependent on a number of issues, but you know is it effective oh yes, it definitely can be and and that's what we'll get into is it safe for sure legal i mean just quickly about the legal issue because it was banned at one point by the i o c so yeah, and, and
1: I guess it's, um, that uh, change, which happened in two thousand and four, where it came from being tested in competition in the urine um, to being uh, so so WADA, um, the World Anti Doping Agency, still have caffeine on their monitoring list, which basically means that they still they still do assessments um, for caffeine, but they don't do um, any um, breaches. There's no enforcement of a, of a prohibited substances limit um, but they they monitor it for um, spikes or trends in um, abuse so so they sort of reserve the right to at some point potentially bring it back onto the prohibited substances list and they keep a they keep a a check of of effectively um, athlete behavior by way of monitoring um, uh, caffeine so in 2004 when it when it was removed from the prohibited substances list Um, I I was uh, not long out of um, Canberra where we'd done some caffeine work and, you know, we we sort of were raising more questions and and because it it was now legal, it was sort of open for further, um, I guess, ethically approved um, research uh, from the point of view that you weren't, you know, clearly involved in, you know, purposeful doping under a potential banned substance. Um, Now... uh, Funding being the way it is, um, the group that I was working with in Canberra with Louise Burke at the Institute of Sport, uh, which is an agency that's largely government funded. Um, at the time, um, George Gregan, who was the captain of the Wallabies um, and very, very well known big, uh, large public figure here, um, discussed fairly openly in the in the media the use of no-dose tablets before play and that that was a common practice. And, The whole issue of purposeful doping um, came up and you know the message that that sent to young people from role models and 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 so it became a a very large sort of political issue at the time and because of um, the government funding of the Institute of Sport the Institute basically said look we're not going to engage in this research any longer and so it opened up the opportunity for me to do research elsewhere so it's you know these these decisions to legalize Or or make things prohibited you know they have sort of strange spin-off benefits and I guess you know a large chunk of my career has um, has sort of uh, been fortuitously timed around that decision
0: yeah no I yeah when you start learning the background about why certain things have been researched or it is interesting. It's not, it's not because necessarily people sat there and said, I've got a good idea. No, it's some crazy things happened.
1: Yeah. And that led us to go and look at things like, you know, with the change in the prohibited substances, classification of caffeine, you know, are um, athletes actually changing their behaviors based on their awareness of that? And so we we did some work in Hawaii at the Ironman um, in 2005, looking at that. Um, to sort of demonstrate that, yeah, athletes who were aware of of caffeine being a substance that was now able to be used um, were were more likely, or more um, that their intent was to to become more sort of purposeful users of caffeine, and and so uh, you know it, it's a, it is a, a strange um, thing sometimes as to what drives research.
0: Absolutely. So look, let let's get into some of the nitty gritty here. I know we're a bit sensitive for time here. So um, there's a there's a, just a couple of things I think are important that we get into, and <clears throat> uh, you know we're not following a, a logical path here. So um, I'm going to do my best to um, weave backwards and forwards on a couple of things. So since we've just been talking about dosage, I think that's worth getting into. We just quickly inferred that a certain dosage has been chosen for um, the bulk of of research, um, at least up until recently, um, where there's been a a transition from the initial dosage to a a lower dose. Um, Perhaps you could just quickly go over what those dosages are and the relevance of those dosages.
1: Yeah, well, so um, the sort of earlier dose response studies looked at um, doses, you know, uh, up to sort of 10, 11, 12 milligrams per kilo body weight. Classic paper um, from uh, Lawrence uh, Spreet um, used a, a three, six, and nine milligram dose, which was one of the the first dose response studies, and that basically showed that um, that the nine uh, milligrams and um, and sort of uh, no no caffeine were were not um, the most advantageous for an endurance performance task, but um, somewhere between three and six was probably reasonable. Now, um, the, the downside obviously about taking large doses of caffeine is it comes with a, a bunch of uh, side effects and, and some of those are sort of behavioural and, and lead to um, you know, people being unable to sleep, potentially getting headaches, um, raising anxiety levels and, and traditionally caffeine was, was given in an hour or so before competition. So typically uh, people are already you know, fairly... Um, anxious or agitated and and well aroused in that period. And then when you give them a dose of caffeine, um, it only exacerbates some of those symptoms, uh, particularly things like gastrointestinal and and urinary sort of outputs. And so, um, you know, people have looked at, you know, well, what's the the least or the lowest dose of caffeine that we can give? And so um, the three sort of milligram dose, and we've done some dose response studies um, lower than that, and uh, you know there's been a number in the literature at sort of one one and a half milligrams two milligrams um my take on on the literature is that you're more commonly going to see um a performance benefit across a range of sports at uh, at a dose of around three milligrams or around um, so sort of that 200 uh, sorry three milligrams per kilogram or about 200 milligrams of, of caffeine for for average weight sort of person um that said, some some individuals in our lab, uh, what I would call fast absorbers, and, uh, and their peak in plasma uh, caffeine is higher than others. And so uh, with some athletes, um, particularly high performance athletes, we've actually done some caffeine profiling of them to determine how, how much caffeine they need to have in order to sort of raise their plasma caffeine levels and over what sort of time course that occurs.
0: Yeah, just, just, just quickly, uh, um, how quickly, from ingestion, does it actually do its thing?
1: Um, well, if you if you take a gum, it's very, very quick. Um, it can be, um, in, you know, a- appearance rates within 10 minutes. You start to see. Um, but for most people, um, within 15 minutes, you see um, some caffeine. And it usually peaks um, for most people at about sort of 45 minutes or so after ingestion. Um, yeah. But we have had people in our lab that we've given repeated doses to who haven't had caffeine in their system for um, 75 to 90 minutes after we've given them a dose so they've actually got they've actually got uh, no still no caffeine in their system now whether that's a a a, a response to the capsule that the caffeine was put in um, or it's uh, some sort of transport um, related issue in the gastrointestinal tract I'm not too sure but most most people will have some caffeine in their system within about sort of 20 minutes and peak at about 45 minutes or so
0: yeah, I, I mean, we haven't got time to get into this, but, it, the, you know, the, the pharmacokinetics of, of caffeine, it, it, I mean, as with most performance nutrition interventions, it's not just a question of taking something and, you know, assuming it's, it's just going to work. You, you do need to bear in mind there can be a lag time, um, but also there's a potential additive effect and it can go the other way too, can't it? it can, that There can be a, an inhibitory effect as well. Well,
1: well, caffeine hangs around in the system for a while. Um, so it's, its half-life is, you know, for most people, somewhere between five and seven hours. So if you think about that in a practical sense, the likelihood that you're going to get another caffeine source um, as part of your, you know, many people's normal day is quite high. So you are going to get um, an element of crossover between one dose and the next dose. Um, and that's something that's important to think about when you know when you're dealing with athletes, sort of pre-competition. Most yeah. laboratory studies have typically given caffeine an hour before, and some of the endurance ones throughout, um, many athletes will be exposed to caffeine for, you know, within that sort of four to five hour period before activity, not purposefully taking caffeine for its ergogenic effects, but just as a natural consequence of the foods that they like to consume
0: yeah so a key, a key take home there is um, there is timing issues and it can be very individual, so you need to as we said earlier you need to to train with this you know practice with it to see what works for you individually but timing is is a very interesting thing you know we've talked a lot about um, n- nutritional timing interventions you know uh, strategies before and after training before and after competition half-time strategies done a few things on that very very interesting um right so i know a short time so uh, there's a couple of things we really really do need to get into um the 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 sort of how caffeine actually works i think is well worth a few minutes because this is there's a lot of assumptions that are made with it you know you you consume caffeine it, give, it gives you a boost, it stimulates you, but it's not quite so simple. Um, as I was reading more into it, you know, the, the, how it influences adenosine receptors, that sort of thing. Could you just give us a quick 101, um, uh, a brief 101 of how caffeine actually works?
1: Well, it's, um, it, it's not 100% clear, <laughs> is the simple answer. Um, you mentioned adenosine, and a caffeine structurally is very similar to adenosine. And as such, it um, it acts as an adenosine receptor uh, inhibitor. So, um, so it, it has a sort of neuromodulatory sort of function. Um, there, when you talk about adenosine receptors, there's there's more than one. I think there's been four um, identified, and it appears that caffeine. So, so of those four, there's uh, what they call A1, A A2A, A2B, and A3. Um, it appears that um, so those low to moderate doses of caffeine probably block the A1 and A2A adenosine receptors, and and these things are found throughout the body, both centrally and peripherally. And this is makes it so difficult to understand caffeine's mechanism, is because it's probably working on multiple tissues concurrently, given its uh, solubility and its digestibility and its its uh, capacity to be sort of quickly transported around the body. So, you know, normally as a scientist, if you see something that improves someone's performance, you want to find out how. Um, you know, and pinpoint that one thing. Well, the, the, the issue with caffeine has been, that it's probably interacting with, with both central and peripheral mechanisms concurrently. So, if you want to go and search for one thing, you, you've sort of got the wrong bait in the water. You need to look at sort of multiple issues, and and we know that this is probably the case because there's been some really great work um, conducted with people with uh, spinal lesions. Um, so, so a lot of the original work looked at sort of caffeine from a its effect on um, epinephrine or adrenaline and it's, and it's then subsequent effects on um metabolism and sort of metabolic pathways but um some of the studies that have been done have been done on people who who don't have this epinephrine response yet you still see um caffeine having an effect on on, on their muscles so it, it has um clearly some direct effect at the muscle um but it also um through uh these adenosine receptor inhibitions, uh, likely to have some central effects as well um, and that and, and that may um, see it um, improve things like um, cognitive function whether that be sort of more probably more uh, like uh, potentially long-term memories some some but particularly executive functions so you know making decisions solving you know strategies to solve problems as well as the um potentially direct effect on on muscle as well possibly through calcium release Uh, possibly also through iron um, iron sort of um, channel sort of regulation. Um, But uh, adenosine receptors themselves haven't been completely mapped through the body, so it it then becomes very difficult to identify
0: exactly uh, all of the mechanisms by which caffeine may work. But, I mean, it's so fascinating. Uh, The more I was reading, you know, just how many different aspects of the body it can affect is incredible yeah. Uh, yeah on so many different levels and and i guess since we'll keep this to performance uh just and i know we're short of time so but with with the performance side of things there's a there's a number of of areas that are w- warrant um a brief chat and you know we're not just talking about caffeine stimulates you. you know people talk about it as a boost they talk about it as a pre-workout you know it, it's that thing that that helps you get through fatigue as you progress through your endurance event. You know, cyclists, runners, you know, all sorts of people will use it. But the area, and, and because I'm a, a nutritionist and a physiologist, one area I'm particularly interested in is things that influence substrate utilization. And there are um, there's some interesting effects that caffeine may have also on substrate utilization and not just catecholamine you know, issues and so on. Perhaps you could just quickly delve into that for us.
1: Well, the original um, uh, interest in caffeine uh, came about because there was some observed um, effects on uh, sparing muscle glycogen, which at the time in the sort of 1970s was uh, all the rage to try and improve endurance performance. Um, And so caffeine was identified as a potential uh, glycogen sparing um, compound and therefore... Uh, potentially uh, also uh, advantageous for endurance performance by increasing um, uh, sort of free free fatty acid uh, metabolism. Um, the uh, the glycogen um, sparing effect appears to be related to um, some um, uh, phosphorylation activity more so than um, raising free fatty acids. So it's it's not that uh, that the um, glycogen sparing effect uh, was um, a response to the lack of free fatty acids more so than a, a direct effect on on your ability to uh, potentially utilise glycogen, um, certainly early on in exercise. Um, but there's been, as I said, um, some other um, sort of interesting studies looking at particularly calcium release uh, from the muscle and its direct effect on, on the ability to recruit um, muscle um, and um, cause sort of... Um, a more effective uh, sort of motor recruitment um, um, through changes to the psychoplasmic reticulum um, as um, a- a- another potential uh, mechanism.
0: Yeah. I mean, so, I mean, loosely, you know, with caffeine, and as I said, this is just mentioned, I guess, in this podcast, um, that, you know, and folks can read a lot more about the mechanisms and direct effects in, in, in your book, which I'll, Reference in the uh, in the notes to the podcast, but also the various papers um, which everyone you must read because this stuff is absolutely fascinating to all levels actually um, but I, I guess if we just summarize the various ways in which it can affect the body that has a relevance to performance, what what would they be and, and, and by that, I mean you know brain, muscle, fuel usage what, what, what are the areas that people might want to consider? Um, caffeine um, for from a performance enhancing or performance optimization perspective?
1: Yeah, well certainly it appears to um, importantly reduce your perception of effort um, and uh, that occurs um, fairly um, broadly across uh, different exercise modalities and that can be very, very useful. Um, and you mentioned earlier things like um, when if you want to uh, you know, train low, compete high, or, or you're looking at manipulating nutritional periodization, caffeine um, has been implicated in a number of studies as a, a mechanism of still providing uh, a, an avenue to train hard in the context of potentially altered sort of substrate availability. Um, so I, th- I think that perception of effort um, uh, element of caffeine is something to uh, pay attention to from an athletic performance perspective um, and we we uh, the other thing that I, I encourage people to think about is you know how caffeine is used um, in the general population people don't tend to um, wait for um, you know when when they uh, consumer caffeinated product, they often start to feel benefit from that, or a change in their um, level of concentration or or their their energy levels within sort of 15 to 20 minutes. So, and and then and then from that onwards, um, so uh, you know, I th- I think that uh, potentially um, may give us some further um, you know sort of practical advice as to as to potentially how to use caffeine. So, for instance, if you are involved in Um, endurance triathlons for instance Um, many many people will will wait um, later on in the event um, potentially halfway through a a cycle leg or even at the end of a cycle leg before starting a run knowing that it's that sort of psychological benefit that they want from the caffeine as much as the as any potential metabolic change that occurs Um, but the use of it in training to um, um, particularly when you're doing sort of performance training um, to really uh, drive adaptation through higher um, efforts, um, where where the quality of the training is important. Um, caffeine is particularly sort of useful in that context, mm. um, and probably probably be my sort of ma- major thoughts on on using it.
0: No, that's great. And just a uh, because you know a lot of people talk about the benefits, and we should quickly talk about the the negatives um, and the myths as well. Um, uh, some great stuff recently about the implications for caffeine and hydration. I, I read with great interest, Sophie Killer's paper, um, about this. Um, you know, a lot of people talked about historically, you know, if you're going to have a cup of coffee, you need to also have a glass of water to compensate. But but a lot of that's bunkum now, isn't it? Could, could you just quickly tell us about that?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, the, the best research that's been done in that area clearly indicates that Uh, once somebody becomes habituated to caffeine that it doesn't have a huge influence on their overall hydration status that is that you know that they can consume uh, caffeinated products routinely and and that won't uh, cause a chronic level of dehydration if you like I I look at it from the flip side what is the the downside by telling people to avoid a caffeinated product and are they going to replace that that fluid which is often the case uh, with another fluid particularly in Populations who may be vulnerable to dehydration, like um, elderly folk and, and, and folk who may not be drinking a, a, a great deal. So I, I think this is a you know all of these messages come with both a positive and a negative aspect to them. Something like uh, telling people to avoid uh, caffeinated drinks, um, you know, potentially has a, a downside if those if 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 that inflammation is then resulting in individuals who don't drink anything because they're, they're, they're frightened or scared of the influence of, of the caffeine. There's no doubt that at uh, the concentrations of caffeine in most products, um, it's not gonna cause a, a significant diuresis and that um, the the benefit will be that you will retain more fluid than you'll lose and therefore you, you should be encouraging people to to have drinks containing caffeine as opposed to drinking nothing at all.
0: Yeah, yeah, and we know, you know, about timing, um, we mentioned that, you know, it can be used pre-training, can be used during training, can even be used post-training for various benefits that folks can get out of the, the papers and books. Um, but we should also bear in mind this, this idea of you can, you can use something, but should you use it? And, and by that, I mean, we, we, you know, we, we know that it stimulates, but that could be issue timing if it's going to affect sleep. Uh, what, what should folks bear in mind with regards to that? I've got a great podcast listeners with John Bartlett, all about sleep and health and performance. Um, sleep is, is becoming a a really interesting area and it's implications for health and recovery and adaptations to training, but specifically with, 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 caffeine, um, there is an implication for sleep quality. What would that be?
1: Yeah. Look, I think um, it comes back to um, individuals' uh, habituation to caffeine. We get some people who are very, very sensitive to caffeine, and uh, there's no doubt that um, consuming caffeine is going to make it more challenging for those individuals to fall asleep, and then and they may actually sleep lighter as a consequence of that. I think it's always a case of being, um, you know, sort of uh, looking at the the perspective in the context that you uh, are. Are going to be sort of finding oneself. So, for instance, if you've got um, evening sport um, and it's highly competitive, and you naturally become uh, quite anxious and aroused before um, you you play, then I would be very cautious about having a large amount of of caffeine before that competition. Um, particularly if you've got subsequent competitions in the in the um, in the next few days, and and recovery is important. And the primary reason for that is that um, caffeine is a central nervous system stimulant um if you're already highly stimulated are you going to get um all of the benefits from caffeine um we don't really uh have any good evidence as to people who are highly aroused already then given caffeine as to whether they still get the same ergogenic benefit from something that that we see in our lab where people are generally calm and and, and uh and and fairly um um you know, interested in exercise, but they, but they're not going out in front of, you know, 10 or 20 or 30,000 people who are screaming at them to, um, you know, perform.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. And, a uh, sort of a, a, more or less a final point is maybe that, you know, the, 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 the relevance and significance of the impact of caffeine relative to, um, the importance that caffeine has in, In our lives, from um, um, you know, more from a uh, it's something that we enjoy and we like. And there are going to be scenarios where, to get some of these benefits, you might need to cut back on caffeine in your day to day life so that it, it has potentially a greater effect strategically. But the pros and cons of that need to be weighed up because I know for me, if I was to cut out my regular cups of coffee throughout the day because I love it. Um, life would take on a very dark, <laughs> a very dark place <laughs> without my coffee throughout the day. But, you know, I'm not an athlete, but um, maybe we should just quickly mention that, you know, as practitioners, as scientists, we we, we can bark orders or recommendations at our, at our audience, but without necessarily considering preferences and likes and dislikes and, and weighing that up against You know um, something specific, like a a, you know a strategic benefit to taking caffeine.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think I think it's a really good point because um, you know, and it's it's interesting going back to why we do research. Um, You know, we we published a study a few years ago on caffeine withdrawal where we got participants to abstain from caffeine and then we and then we gave them either a placebo capsule or caffeine for four days leading into a. An acute dose of caffeine or placebo to have a look to see whether people became more sensitive after a you know four day withdrawal period, and and the reason that we did that study was uh, as much to understand caffeine withdrawal, but also to have a, a a firmer or a stronger footing for recommendations for future studies because we couldn't find participants who who would abstain from caffeine for uh, twenty four or forty eight hours before our studies. That was the most difficult thing in recruiting people. Um, mm-hmm and so we wanted to find out if um you know whether we needed to go to that extent of um, having them withdraw um and and could we become a little bit more lenient with our pre-trial standardization now even even something as simple as that question uh is still up for a little bit of debate we didn't find that the withdrawal had any effect but there's been a recent study published in the last um six months or so from the uk uh which has taken that withdrawal period out to a longer uh, period or almost a uh, a month or so, uh, which show, which has shown sort of uh, different responses. So, I think ca- caffeine withdrawal is is something that is very very difficult uh, for some individuals um, who are habituated to caffeine, and it may be that they actually perform worse having withdrawn from caffeine because they um, have headaches and you get sleep disturbance from caffeine withdrawal as well. Um, so, so it is, um, again, contextual. It, you know, you don't want to come back to always saying it depends. But in this case, it, it, you, know, you do need to have a look at the natural behaviours of the individual you're talking to.
0: Yeah, well, you, yeah, no, I know. I think, as I mentioned earlier, I think it's important that whether you're a practitioner, a researcher or a consumer, you still need to bear in mind you know there's many different ways to achieve a goal and there are lots of things you need to consider you just need to think and you need to invest some time in actually understanding what it is that you're using and what you're doing and that's the benefit of things like these conversations recorded in a podcast format or of course reading books and and papers and being you know um better informed means you're you're, you know all around it's going to be a better a better result and um and that's you know my mission here. So look, listen, um, I, I, you know, I know we could actually talk for hours about this stuff, and and maybe we maybe we'll do some follow-ups on this. There's all sorts of different areas we could get into. But I mentioned your your book, um, um, caffeine for sports performance, um, which anyone can Google. You can get it on Kindle, um, Google Books. There's all sorts of places you can get this um, by uh, Louise Burke. Uh, yourself, Ben, Desbrown and Lawrence Spreet. I highly recommend that um, for anyone, uh, no matter what your level of education. If you go to, and I'll put links to this in the uh, notes on um, the podcast page for this at guruperformance.com, uh, but uh, ResearchGate, uh, Google Scholar for, for you, Ben. Um, I've had a look, you've got loads of great papers, et cetera, that, um, uh, not just on this topic, but lots of other areas um are worth looking into so i'll make sure all the links that are all there but um uh, if people want to follow you on twitter uh, ben what would your twitter id be
1: um i'm just ben Desbro, i think is my handle so yeah you, um you can join the um unfortunately it's not a few hundred thousand but we're an exclusive
0: uh, we're an exclusive bunch well, it's it's quality, not quantity, Ben. That's the key.
1: I it. I think it's the Kardashian index. That, uh, oh, I know. Yes, yes, yes. No, I love that. Absolutely.
0: <laughs> I remember Louise uh, talking about that at
1: yeah, the conference. Yeah. So uh, I've got that in mind, mate. I don't want to. Uh, I don't want to explode the Twitter account, but we're always always uh, welcoming new members.
0: No, awesome. Well, great stuff. Well. Uh, I do appreciate your time. It's always interesting, particularly in this scenario where you're literally on the other side of the world in a completely different time zone um, there in Australia and here in the UK. But I know that we all appreciate your time and and uh, we look forward to learning more from you in the future. And Like I say, everyone check out Ben's uh, book and papers and um, and um, you know there's a lot to be to be learned from there. So I you know thank you very much. Um, oh, thank for you for me. the
1: invitation. And um, you know it's uh, we try and do work that we find interesting, and it's it's always nice to know that it resonates with other people. Um, so uh, yeah, again, thanks for the invitation.
0: No, my my pleasure. So. Um, Thank you everyone for listening. If you just go to guruperformance.com, you'll get access to this and all the other podcasts. Uh, This is 91, so there's quite a few to catch up with uh, if you've only just started. There's also um, uh, a bunch of, as I said, infographics, uh, uh, position stand articles and and overview uh, videos by the Guru Performance team and also our um, professional education programs. You can learn about that. Uh, So that's it. Uh, I, of course, am Laurel Bannock. And once again, thank you, Ben.
1: No problem. Thanks, mate.